0: And we raised our seed round, to be honest, in two and a half weeks, which is like insane what? and pretty Hold
1: unheard up. of. Hold up. Okay. Okay. First of all, <laughs> who are you? <laughs> is, I've never heard that. You raised $2.8 million in two weeks. Okay. Stop there. This is Get Shit Done, a show about female entrepreneurs who are not willing to settle for 4%. And the stories and steps they took to scale their companies to the top through traction by getting shit done and growing on their own terms. Imagine this, raising $2.8 million in two weeks for your business. Then fast forward, maybe a year down the road, it takes you six months to raise 9.6 $9.6 million. And then fast forward only three months and a Chinese billionaire comes to your door, knocking on your door. Now you go into their door, your door, saying, hey, you want an extra $11 million? Like, what? Are we in the twilight zone? No, we're not. Because our guest today, that actually happened to her. Like, where they do that at? They do that with Truti. But like any good story, there's always a little bit of drama. So fast forward, you raise that $22 million, and about a year later, imagine this, your company fails. Welcome back to the Get Shit Done Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Batdorf aka Chief Get Shit Done Officer and the founder of Get Shit Done. We are the originators of the Fuck 4% movement that focuses on helping female entrepreneurs get the traction they need to scale their companies on their own terms. I am so excited to share this interview with y'all with an incredible woman, Truti Shah, because her story of raising capital And a lot of it, and still failing, is not uncommon. We just don't hear about it enough. But these are the type of things we do not talk about in the entrepreneurial ecosystem because we much rather glamorize how much money someone raised instead of what's behind the door, what's actually happening in the business. And that's why I brought on my phenomenal guest today, Shruti Shah. Buckle up, y'all, because you have a front row seat through Shruti's journey from when she started in Hebrew school to going to be a public school teacher in Baltimore to going out to the West Coast to Y Combinator to building a company over three years that raised $22 million and yet it still failed. She is spilling all the tea on what she learned, what female founders should be considering today, and what she's doing now, building an alternative to VC financing. P.S. In true startup fashion, we were playing a little trial and error on the sound side, y'all, with some of these original episodes. <laughs> Now a girl has a real mic, but there will be a little iffiness in some of the sound for some of these. However, it does not take away from the fact that there are nothing but gems being dropped throughout the entire episode. That's going to help you get shit done, honey. Without further ado, Queen Shruti Shah.
0: So my name is Shruti. I am an entrepreneur. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and went to college in North Carolina. My background's kind of funky. My mom is a Jewish New Yorker from the Bronx, and my dad is an Indian immigrant, and I was adopted um, when I was 11 months old. I was born in India. Grew up in the South, uh, you know, went to Hebrew school, but also went to an all-girls private Episcopal school until I was in eighth grade. So also got a heavy dose of religion, I guess you could say, as I was growing up. Um, But really, I think it had a lot of experiences where I was navigating what it looks like to operate in a world where, you know, you're pretty different from a lot of people. And I think it's very much probably what contributed to my, the, the entrepreneurial ethos that I have developed. So I went to college in North Carolina, thought I was going to study or thought I was going to work in the public sector and ended up becoming a public school teacher um, did that for two years in Baltimore, and I think that was probably the hardest job I've ever had, harder than running and building a company. Oh,
1: um, yes.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, learned a ton in that experience, but also really got interested in the role that technology was playing in education, had built a lot of relationships with entrepreneurs who were building ed tech companies, and found myself in Silicon Valley working for an early stage education technology fund. Um, and this was like 2013. So it was around the time that a lot of people were starting companies. And I guess you could say that I caught the bug myself. Um, and I ended up taking the plunge with three friends to start a company called Move Loot. So Move Loot was an online marketplace for buying and selling used furniture. And unlike Craigslist or some of the other marketplaces you might know out there, we actually took the hassle out of helping people buy and sell their stuff. We would come to your house, we'd pick up a sofa, take it back to a warehouse, photograph it, list it on a website and deliver it to a buyer when it's sold. And um, this was really born out of the pain that we had as co-founders of moving from the East Coast to the West Coast, feeling like there needed to be a better solution here and no one had come up with it. Um, and so sure enough, we we took the plunge. We raised $15,000 on an Indiegogo campaign. We started emailing people on Craigslist, telling them we would pick up their stuff. We quit our, quit our jobs. And we were movers. We drove around San Francisco picking up sofas and dining room tables and chairs. And sure enough, um, you know, it worked. Maybe it worked because we were living, living in California. And maybe only in California do people say, oh, interesting, a new startup. I'll, uh, I'll see what that's about. But um, we found ourselves in Y Combinator. And very quickly from there, the company grew very fast. So we closed a $2.8 million seed round. Um, eventually grew the company to you know a few hundred employees in seven different offices around the United States. We built our own logistics company on the back end to be able to support all of this um, to provide a really good experience to our end users. And then things started to change. Um, the funding environment changed. Our investors became concerned that we were spending a lot of money, which we were. I'll be totally honest about that. Um, and they asked us to, to focus on profitability. So we shifted our focus towards profitability. Uh, we were on the path to profitability and then had a conversation about growth again with our investors. Um, they wanted us to figure out how to grow, but to do so in a way where we weren't going to a new city and setting up shop. Um, we were doing it in a way that you know, was, was much leaner. And so we ended up changing the business model. Um, we built a peer-to-peer platform instead of having this full service model. And unfortunately it didn't work. I think hindsight's twenty twenty. I think I could talk give you a million reasons why it didn't work and why the writing was on the wall before we even made the switch. Um, but ultimately what I think it came down to was a mismatch between our customer and the product. The the customer that really wanted a peer to peer platform was a fundamentally different customer than the customer we had found at Move Loot.
1: Mm. Um, okay, so, so you have there's like This entire story where it went from Hebrew school to I'm in Baltimore teaching and then I'm in Silicon Valley. So I want to kind of paint the picture because you, I think we kind of think of this model or at least something I get very um, frustrated about is a lot of the stories we hear around women who started companies. You did B school, you know, you then validated it with your classmates and so on and so forth. Um, but yours is different and I want to kind of paint that picture of what were you doing, you know, before you guys started. So you were like the moving space sucks. So you were in Silicon Valley at the time. What took you to Silicon Valley and you know, what transpired for you to get your co-founders together, meet them and then start this thing, um, and, and, and have it take off. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it was probably luck, but I ended up in Silicon Valley because I wanted
0: to, I thought I wanted to work for an ed tech company and then I got a job at a fund. So I was doing kind of early stage ed tech investing, really like just helping the partners do diligence on companies and then providing the perspective of somebody that had, you know, on the ground teaching experience. Um, And I liked that a lot. I think what frustrated me was that, I wanted to be in on the action. I wanted to be the person building. Um, And I think that's can be a hard place to be when you're an investor. And also I think the market in ed tech can be a little bit limited. Um, And so I wanted kind of a different challenge. I was very young. I was 24. And so I think I thought to myself, well, what do you have to lose? I mean, the worst that happens is you do this and it doesn't work out. And then You can go get a real job. Um, I think I distinctly remember my mom saying something like, "You have six months to figure this out, (laughs) and then you need to go get a job at a real company."
1: (laughs) Oh my god, my mom! She didn't say that to me, but um, her response to me when I was starting my first company, she was like, "Oh my god, Alex, we need more black doctors and lawyers." (laughs) 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 What are you talking about?
0: (laughs) I mean, my mom. My mom was a corporate lawyer for like you know. 40 years. So she was, she was just like, what are you doing? Um, I mean, I think I, I think in college I told her, I said, I think I said, mom, I want to be an entrepreneur. And she was like, that's not a job.
1: Yeah. No, that's, and I think it's also a, a product of that, that generation because of what they saw and went through. I totally get it. It's yeah, I totally get it. So much love. Um, uh, but I think what we had the privilege of is experiencing, wow, sc- sky is kind of the limit. Um, so I, I, totally get it. So then I love how you guys got started. You guys first, let's, before we talk about the $15,000, um, let's talk about how did you even get together with the co-founders Yeah. decide we're going to do a moving company totally decide that.
0: So one of my co-founders was a, close friend from college. And so we'd always talked about starting a company together and he, he was a CEO. And then our two other co-founders were friends that we had met through another mutual friend who had gone from, who went to high school with them and college with us. Um, and I think, you know, I think some of this was also just like, we were all very young. We're all about the same age. We had the same number of years of work experience. And I think we were just all feeling like, you know, is this all there is? Like, do we really want to keep climbing the corporate ladder or do we just want to figure something out? What year? Um, This was 2013. Mm, That makes sense. And so I think we were just like, cool, let's just try it and see what happens. Um, And I think, I don't think any of us, I I mean, I, I guess I can't speak for them, but like, I had no idea what we were in for much less like a full understanding of, of, the journey that we were about to go on together. Um, And there was obviously a lot of learning there um, between the four of us and also like, you know, you go from being basically a a kid to being an executive at a, you know, a small to mid-sized company (laughs) seemingly overnight. And that's, that's a hard transition. It's a hard transition for anyone to make. I mean, it's a particularly hard transition when everyone you hire is older than you and has more work experience and, you know, and is looking to you to, to guide the strategic direction of this business. Um, when the reality is you
1: don't, you don't always have the answers. it. Oh, that's so true. I remember going through that in my former company where we did raise venture dollars and I was the youngest person on my co-founding team by five and nine years. And of course, when we started hiring, there was people that were older than me and I could kind of sense sometimes tension, but also in my own head, I'm just like, am I good enough to do this? So I totally get it. It's that transition when you're a young executive and founder and CEO, or just executive team in general, where you're like, Hmm, let me get out of my head a little bit. Okay. So the fact that you guys did this whole thing on Craigslist and then just started going and picking up people's stuff, walk us through that. Like, did you go and find like U-Hauls? Like Yeah. We
0: rented, we rented a Penske truck by the week. Um, So we went to Penske. I mean, we were, we didn't have any credit history as a business. Like I still, to this day, I'm like, I do not know how we did this stuff. (laughs) And also I think about it and I'm like, if somebody said, this is how you're going to start a company now, like, would you do that? (laughs) The answer would probably be no. Like if if it was like, you're going to become a mover for a month.
1: Every, um, every entrepreneur has a story where they're just like, if you would have told me that it was going to be this, how hard, I don't know if I would have done it. <laughs> don't know what I, I mean, yeah,
0: exactly. So we, I mean, we literally drove around the city. We would like show up at someone's house because they'd emailed us and we would take their couch and we'd carry it down some narrow flight of stairs, put it in the truck. We took it back to this warehouse, warehouse space. It was also our office. So we like put in a little desk and we plugged in computers and occasionally, you know, we would like flip the circuit breaker because we were we put the power out with all of our our coffee maker and all of our plugs everywhere but we yeah. took <laughs> yeah exactly and we took we took photographs and this warehouse obviously doesn't have any it's San Francisco which is always cold and it doesn't have any insulation. So like we're sitting you know in this warehouse in scarves and jackets and long pants and we set up a makeshift studio which someone on Craigslist once called a dungeon. They told us our photographs looked dungeon like which they did at the time I mean they were really uh it was it was it was very basic and we put up a website Ryan who was our CTO he built the website overnight um we uploaded all these photos and then we reposted all the items back onto Craigslist and so then people would email in we had made up a fake Craigslist account giving away all my Craigslist secrets I don't even know if I can use Craigslist anymore um (laughs) but they would email in. I was Susan Lee at gmail.com or something like that. Yes, Susan. Um, I know. (laughs) Just to figure out the the most generic name that you could find. Um, And uh, they would email in and I would email them back and say, you know, so glad you're interested in this armoire. Like we're this new company move loot. You should check us out on this website and you can purchase the item here. Well, of course for the first, you know, 10 transactions, people were like, what is this sketchy company? And our website was not that beautiful. And so I think there was um, some fear. I think the first guy that ever bought a table from us, he said, you know, uh, I don't really trust your website, but if you bring me the table, I'll give you a hundred dollar bill. <laughs> and so we sure enough showed up at his house with the table and he gave us a hundred dollar bill and that was the first sale on MoveLoop.
1: I love that. And I love that when I get founders that come to me and they're hesitating on like pulling the trigger on something because they're like, I need to get the business cards. I need to get the beautiful site, I need to do all this. And I'm just like, hold on. First of all, most founders I know had either no website or a shitty website. My last company, we literally for the first three or four years, it was me and my co-founder drinking bottles of wine, going into Photoshop when neither one of us has any design skills whatsoever. And then just creating templates and uploading stuff. Like it was not pretty at all, but it got us to a million. So (laughs)
0: whatever. Exactly. Right. Sometimes you just got to be scrappy and figure it out.
1: So then you guys sold the first thing and then you have the story where you go from, you raise what? 2.8 million in your seed round. So you go from, you sell this to then you raise this money and then you have a hundred employees and you raise even more. So take me to, what was that process like? Like, where did you need to be at to get even the seed round? Because I hear this often. I actually was just messaging a founder right before this on LinkedIn, where she's like, "I have the MVP, but I'm having a hard time getting money from investors." And I'm like, "Well, that's not enough because that's not traction. The traction is, you know, the validation from the customers, which you guys had. You had sold something. So, when did you guys decide to raise that capital?" and where were you at in terms of numbers to even raise 2.8 and mind you this was i mean a few years back so it's probably i mean the stakes are even higher today
0: yeah they're even higher um and and at that time seed capital was very free flowing i think the advantage that we had well i think there are a number of advantages we had but one of which was that we raised money at a time when capital was plentiful um and we went through Y Combinator. So, you know, pretty quickly after we launched this MVP, we had applied to YC. Within two months, we had gotten into YC. Where were and you that, at?
1: Sorry about this. Where, where were you at uh, when you were applying to YC? What were your, what traction? Did whoa, you what traction do we have?
0: have? I think that we were probably doing somewhere between five and 10000 in revenue a month. Yep. Um, and then... By the time we finished YC we were doing close to somewhere in the ballpark of between 25 and 35,000 a month.
1: That's awesome.
0: Um, now granted like this is a business that had a lot of costs so you know our margins were pretty slim. <laughs> um, but it was still I think enough traction to prove that there was something there and the other metric that we looked at a lot was supply. So we were a two-sided marketplace. For us a big Uh, component of growth was do you have enough supply we at one point had you know somewhere between seven and nine thousand items on our site and the the piece of feedback we would constantly get from people was we love what you're doing but we wish you had more stuff and and that's the challenge I think with you know with used items specifically is that every item is unique so Somebody might be coming to your website to look for a green sofa, and you might have 10 green sofas. But if it's not the green sofa that they're looking for, they're gonna tell you you don't have enough stuff.
1: That's um, real. I, I find that, yeah. you know, with us, it was at ZipFit when, I mean, we didn't own anything. We were just the, the, we had it on our website and then get a drop shipped and we um, customize it. But we were constantly updating our website when our brands would br- have new line sheets we would update and get the new images and put it up there because the name of the game is newness always like consumers are always looking for something new because it's like, well, if I've already purchased this from you, then I kind of don't need anything else. That's what, that's why I'm I'm actually really fascinated that you guys were able to raise that round and you might've had resistance, but I know in the, the, the marketplace e-com space, there is a lot of resistance from investors because of the overhead or how much risk goes into how many products you need.
0: You know, I think that there's a lot of resistance now and I think there's a lot of resistance because of companies like ours, to be honest. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think in 2013, the way the market had evolved was that there was a lot of interest in very early stage funding. And I think there was renewed interest in you know, there are companies like Webvan. I mean, something that would come up a lot in our pitch meetings is how are you different than Webvan, which Webvan was this company in the 90s that was a lot like Instacart where they had overhead and they owned warehouses and logistics and the operation. And that was something we certainly got pushed back on. But I think the, the the philosophy and the thinking was, well, maybe technology has come far enough now that like we're kind of past the point where that's going to matter as much. And it was the the Amazonification of everything, yeah. right? Like they were looking at Amazon saying, well, Amazon did it. So Maybe these guys can figure it out too. And Wayfair had figured something out. So it was like, there was some, um, I think, overall positive uh, belief about what was possible in the market. And, you know, and at least when it comes to HomeGoods, we have not, still to this day, have not even tapped the full potential of that market from an e-commerce perspective. Like, that is a massive opportunity and growing opportunity. So, yeah. So I wouldn't say there wasn't pushback, but I think it was... Somewhat enabled by a number of companies that had not yet burned VCs on 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 that category.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's like what we're seeing with co-working spaces right now, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Oh wait, there's a pandemic can happen. It can crash your entire business. Right, um, that makes a lot of sense. So you guys, you went from you got into YC, you were at about five to ten MRR. Then you left. You guys were at about twenty five to thirty, which is awesome. Um, so then. Was that when you started raising the capital? Yep.
0: So we, I mean, we raised it just as we were finishing YC. So closed our round right after demo day. We raised our seed round, to be honest, in two and a half weeks, which is like insane what? and pretty Hold unheard up. of.
1: Hold up. Okay. Okay. First of all, <laughs> who are you? Because <laughs> that is, I've never heard that. You raised $2.8 million in two weeks. Okay. Stop there. So... million. What were the terms? Like, what was the most like? How many investors? I need to know all the T's because that's incredible, even for that time. Like, yeah,
0: it was pretty incredible. Um, we we raised from some really great investors. Um, first round and index co led our seed round. Oh, you had, um, yeah. yeah, um. Well, and we got really lucky. Josh is an amazing investor. Josh Goppelman, who started first round, and he also really understands used goods. He built Half Dot Com, mm-hmm. which he sold to eBay, which was used books. And so we were really fortunate to have him as an investor. Um, and he was really just an amazing advocate for us throughout the whole process of building food flute. Um But I think our first round, we probably had about twenty investors. It was first round index led, but Google Ventures, um, Box Group, wow. Susa. Um, Gosh, I can't even remember all. I mean, uh, Jesse Draper,
1: Halogen, VC was in, initialized capital. I love love Halogen. Okay, first of all, I'm not surprised because one, what you guys had built and the traction piece that you guys were at 25 to 30 MRR, I think there's this kind of fallacy where there are sometimes some companies are pre-traction that get funding, that is rarely the case I ever see. It's like you guys are, we're already generating revenue. Even if you were burning, it showed the investor, wait, there's some demand here we can get behind. So you guys raised that 2.8. What happened then? So you guys, you so went we, from that to hundred people. That's
0: crazy. <laughs> well, so we didn't get hundred people immediately, but we got there pretty quickly. I mean, cause we were building the logistics side of the business and we actually ended up Um, opening our first, second warehouse location. So we moved to a bigger warehouse in San Francisco, but also got a warehouse in North Carolina um, and built a team here so that we could start building our East Coast ecosystem. So the model was hub and spoke. I'm not a supply chain expert. I learned all of this um, and then figured out how to build this model. I didn't
1: know Um, jeans either. And I didn't care about jeans. I just cared about (laughs)
0: those. (laughs) I mean, that's what I cared about too, is like having a good experience. Moving is a horrible experience for a lot of people. And there's a lot of emotion tied to transitions and stuff and we wanted to like make that a better experience for a lot of people so we ended up starting this you know operation in North Carolina we also built out a new part of our business that we called trade by Moose flute but it was a b2b to c portion of our business so we worked with furniture manufacturers and retailers um, which North Carolina is the furniture capital of the United States so we ended up um, you know going to the high point furniture market going to furniture markets working with these retailers and saying look you know, you have all this excess inventory from last season, just give it to us and we'll sell it for you on consignment. And then you don't have to get money from a liquidator. They're getting pennies on the dollar for their stuff that they can't sell. And a consignment rate is much better. And for us, it was great because it was a way for us to hack supply, if you will. Um, Wow. And so um, that was kind of another component of our business as well. So we launched that and then we went out to raise our series A. And, you know, I mentioned that we raised our seed round in two and a half weeks it took us 6 months to raise a series a and i think it took standard yeah i think it is about standard i think for us i think we had i think we had our expectations were 2 weeks <laughs> yeah this is going to take 2 weeks and we're going to be done okay. and i think it, i think it was an education for us in kind of the expectations of the investor and also what we really needed to be at in terms of revenue i mean i think you know i think we were doing about Gosh, we raised our Series A. We went out to raise our Series A probably somewhere between 250 and 300 a month, and I think we needed to be
1: closer to 500 a month. Um, yeah, because you guys, your Series A was the 22 million.
0: Our Series A was 9.6, was and that- then I'll tell you about our third round of funding. So basically, what happened was is that I think over the course of that six month period, we grew into the Series A. Like, we, we basically got to the revenue number that was then interesting. But at that point, there had been a lot of funds that had passed on us. Yeah. Um, and so we eventually closed the A. It was $9.6 million, which was great. Um, that allowed us to start working on setting up shop in some bigger cities. We did New York and L.A. We did Atlanta. Um, and then the weirdest thing happened. So there was an LP who had been invested in a fund that invested in our Series A. He's a Chinese gaming billionaire. His name is Yahweh. And he came to our office one day with a friend of his who had made the investment in MoveLoot and basically offered us a lot of money and said, I really love used furniture. I want to invest in your company. And so what ensued was an opportunistic, what we called an A1. I guess you could call it effectively a Series B. It was $11.6 million. Wow. It's So wait, wait,
1: person, oh, my God, your story is just so amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Chinese billionaire. It's like, Hey, I'm going to find you guys come to your office and I'm going to give you 11 million bucks. In this, well, was- he gave
0: us, yeah, he gave us eight. We negotiated him down. We were basically like, you can't own that much of our company, but then we did a party round. So then it was like all these other investors think, came in, they the
1: lead. Yeah. Them is, I mean, that's like catnip. So yeah, this was how long after you had raised the
0: 9.6, uh, like three months.
1: Oh my God, that's crazy. Okay, so you said at the 9.6, a so series A, you guys, it took you six months. You had heard from investors. They're looking for like 500K. Um, was it MR or ARR? Well, for us, it was GMV because we were- Oh, gross. Yeah, yeah. AM. yeah. Oh, got it. Got it. So you're at that stage. Now you raise the 9.6, you have the 11 million. Now what transpired after that? That is rapid growth.
0: It's totally rapid growth. I mean, that's when we really started spending a ton of money. We were looking at bigger distribution centers in like, you know, rural Pennsylvania. We were really trying to figure out how we were going to scale this business. Yep. And then, you know, probably three months after that is when the funding environment changed. The Chinese economy tanked. Um, very briefly, there was like a blip in 2015 at, I don't know if you remember but there was like a a time period basically where investors started to worry that this was the end of the bubble and they were like okay well if this is the end of the bubble you're never going to be able to raise more money
1: yeah and
0: we were like okay so and that's when we started i mean we'd hired all these people we were building as fast as we could and then they were like scale it back so we ended up having to do you know multiple rounds of layoffs which is super traumatic we're Um, already at the
1: hundred People? Oh,
0: we were close to 300 at that point.
1: You were at 300 people. So before you guys had got the 9.6, how many employees were you at?
0: Before we got 9.6, I think we were probably somewhere between 60 and a hundred. Okay. And, and then, then we what? just rapidly grew I mean, we got a big warehouse. We had a huge distribution center in Fresno, California, and then our North Carolina warehouse grew really quickly. Um, wow. And then we had smaller,
1: like, spokes spoke warehouses in bigger cities yes. um, within a matter of months which happens very often is you get that money in and it's really about we need to invest grow fast and the biggest asset um, in terms of growth is going to be human capital so after that what you had raised the 9.6 and the additional 11 million that was into 2015 that was in Yeah, I guess that was in 2015. 2015. So you had brought on almost 300 employees. So Chinese market, there's some blips there. How quickly after when you got to that 300, how many months after was that when you had to lay off?
0: Uh, Like probably within a month and a half. I mean, we were spending, we were spending an insane amount of money, right? We were spending like probably a million and a half dollars a month.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's, that sounds. And so it was just
0: like, you're going to run out of cash way too fast. Um, so you need to lay people off and like, I, and, and I don't disagree with that. Like, that's not the way that I wanted to build our business. And I think we were feeling the
1: pressure. How did you you decide, decide that we're going to increase by, I mean, two x our staff within that time. And what made, what made you decide these are the hires? Like, who were you hiring?
0: We were hiring a lot of hourly employees. So we had, you know, we had these big distribution centers where we had people that needed to sort the furniture, photograph the furniture, make sure that it was stored correctly, load and unload on trucks. And then we had all of our last, we owned the last mile. So we had our own trucks and warehouses in every location where we were doing delivery. Um, So the only piece of the model that we didn't own was freight. So we were negotiating with, with, Freight trucks, basically, um, to try to get a cost as low as possible because we were running freight trucks back and forth to these big distribution centers daily, basically,
1: yeah.
0: um, with stuff. And so it was just all the processing. I mean, it, it's very manual. And I think we built a lot of tech internally to try to make all those processes more efficient. Um, but it's a huge workforce to manage. And, yeah. and you know, and, then we ha- and, and also having engineers – who are trying to optimize the marketplace side of things where you're, you know, encouraging people to buy, but also optimize for how do you make sure things get scanned correctly and that we know where trucks are at any given time, and that you know, we can send alerts to customers so that it improves the customer
1: experience. So there's there's a lot to it. There's a lot of <clears throat> the different components because the the nature of your business just essentially had high overhead, especially because you own the warehouses, you had the, the, the trucks, you had the human capital, uh, and then also the marketplace and the tech, like yeah. the maintenance of that and putting things up and so on and so forth, wow, that's crazy. So you went from having that 22 million and then after a month and a half having to lay off half the workforce, okay, what happened after that?
0: So at that point we were really focused on profitability and um, spent a number of months, you know, just trying to make sure that we could get profitable. We got unit profitable on the west coast and we were working towards profitable. Well, Actually we were running the east coast operation at break even basically. Um, And then, you know, I think we had a conversation with our board and they basically said, we really appreciate the work you guys have done to get profitable, like laying people off isn't easy, but also we're now worried that your growth has slowed, which is naturally what happens, right? There's this constant tension between growth and profitability. And it's like, okay, well, and so I think there was fear around if you guys don't grow fast enough now, will you be able to raise the capital that we think you need to raise as your investors to be able to justify, you know, an increasingly higher valuation um, on the timeline that we need you to raise it on? and so there was just this huge focus or shift in focus towards building this new model, the peer-to-peer platform and realizing that we weren't sure our business could support running both models. Um, And so we were kind of forced into having to make that other decision and it just, it just didn't work.
1: And so when you guys made that transition, So you laid people off, then you started pivoting over. At what point was this? Was this 2015 still, 2016? No, this
0: is 2016. So 2015 is like the height of the business. But by, you know, really February of 2016, we were starting to have the conversations of, you know, like basically we had seen the effects of the layoffs on the bottom line. Obviously we were getting to profitability, but like, were we going to be able to do it fast enough and we're going to be able to propel growth? a point where it was going to make sense for us to go out again you know in six months and raise more capital
1: yeah um so walk us through that process of now there's concern about growth you guys have pivoted you're starting to get profitable in certain areas but it seems like it's just not enough so you know in terms of the the traction you guys were at when you made the shift Where did your numbers shift to? Were you at a certain revenue? Yeah,
0: so I think we were doing about $750,000 a month in revenue. They felt like we needed to be at a million a month to be able to raise, I guess, the Series B, we'll call it. Yeah, Yeah, the actual Series B. Um, And then what happened was, was that the revenue in the first month, which we pivoted the model officially in April of 2016, the revenue dropped to $150,000.
1: From seven hundred fifty thousand. Wow. That's nuts. And then, because 'cause you're seeing a shift for your customer, right? Like yeah. And it's a different customer. You gotta to market to a different customer, you've got to acquire that
0: customer differently. Different and, thing. you know, it's a different business. Um, and I think we had we had runway, like we could have but we were still, you know, holding on to some of these assets. We were trying to negotiate out of some of these leases. And I think for us we felt like, you know, the business that we had sold investors was fundamentally different than the one that we had pivoted into. And we were solving a problem in a very real way that had real traction that people really loved and this meant we were now competing with OfferUp and LetGo and Craigslist oh, wow. and a market of, of customers that either you know already have really strong name recognition or they have hundreds of millions of dollars to spend on marketing and we had neither. Um, and so that's when we were kind of forced into, okay, what do we do?
1: Can we sell the company? Like what's the the best path forward here? What did you guys choose? So you ended up selling, it sounds like your list to another company, but what was that, that moment or that day you and your team said, it's time we need to shut it down and sell off our, our assets here. What did that look like? So, you know, to our
0: investors' credit, I mean, I guess especially to Josh's credit, he, um, he really believed in us and he was like, look, you know, this isn't an ideal outcome, but you have done everything that we've asked you to do and let's figure out if we can do a pay-to-play. Let's see if we can basically do a down round, get a few more million dollars, see if we can save the company and give you the runway you need to turn the business around. You know, at that point, we've been through four rounds of layoffs um, just to try to keep, you know keep the company alive. Um, I think we were emotionally exhausted. Um, and I think we, we actually raised another three and a half million. Um, wow. And we went back to our investors and we said, look, we really appreciate that you believe in us and that you believe, you know, that we can figure something out, but we don't feel comfortable taking your money. Mm -hmm. Um, because at this point, this isn't the business you invested in. Um, and so we said, look, we're going to do everything we can to try to sell the company. This isn't the outcome that any of us wanted, you know, and, and for the most part, our investors were incredibly kind, um, incredibly thoughtful and in kind of the way they helped us navigate that. I'm incredibly grateful for that. Um, wow. but I think it was really, so we tried to sell the company. The The hard part is we also took venture debt, which some people might be familiar with, but venture debt is, is debt financing you take when you raise equity capital
1: mm-hmm.
0: and when you raise that money, um, that comes with you know, preferred terms, meaning if something happens to the business, you have to let the debt lender know what's going on. They could conceivably seize the business. Anyway, we had, we had a good relationship with our debt lender, but we needed them basically to friendly foreclose on the business so that we could get out of leases. This is like horrible how this bankruptcy stuff works, but basically to stop paying on the leases, um, we had to, to tell them what was going on. And then in doing that, we also kind of shot ourselves in the foot because the value of our business was the fact that we had built all this infrastructure. Um, and so when we went to sell the company, the company that people wanted to buy was the company that had assets because yep. the Amazons and the Wayfares and the, you know, eBay, even the eBay locals of the world, right. They wanted, they wanted infrastructure. They wanted something that they could walk into and say, Oh, well, you already have the setup for this. I can just take over these leases. Mm. Um, so it just made selling the company very difficult. We ended up selling like, pieces of the company. Um, but nothing, there was no big acquisition.
1: Um, and we just wound it down. Wow. And so how did you find this, um, the person you sold to or the company you sold to? How long did that process take? Um,
0: well, I wouldn't even say, I mean, we sold, we sold like our user list and some like marketing stuff. Um, but the soft, the software never sold. And we had all this logistic software we'd built. Um, we had a cool brand, but it was just a, it, I mean, we didn't, there was no part of like, there, we weren't acquired. We weren't Apple hired um, It was kind of like, here, we'll give you some money for your user list effectively.
1: Um, oh, so you guys lost a lot of money on this. Yeah. Well, which happens often. That's, that's not, we just don't talk about it, but it happens very often. So what, walk me through this because right before we started recording, we talked about like the, the works of the world. You know, we we want to glamorize and champion founders and they raise all this money. And then when shit hits the fan, we tend to throw them under the bus. Um, which there is accountability that has to happen when you're a founder. Right. But also there are plenty of people also involved. Like you have investors that were saying, go raise more money because they're trying to protect their investment. But you made you and your team made the very logical decision saying, this is not going to, you know, this is just not the, the business that people are invested in so we can't move forward. So how, walk me through that process for, for at least you We can't speak for your team, but it feels like, I liken it to feeling like you've lost a child, right? And did you ever experience any type of animosity from shareholders or um, customers about this? Because you had raised, I mean, effectively, a, a good amount of money. Yeah. I would say there was a handful, I mean, you
0: know, I guess you never really know, with shareholders like, People people were very kind, and um, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm sure there was probably frustration uh, that wasn't always expressed to us directly. Um, but I think a lot of people were just really sad. I mean, uh, to this day, I, we were, we were I guess, fairly well-known in San Francisco, and, like, people will hear that, you know, I started loot and, like, they're like, oh, I have a sofa that I bought on loot Or, oh, my gosh, you helped me, you know, get rid of my – dining room set. Um, I loved your product. And, and that, I think, I think that's the saddest part for me. I mean, I'm, I don't love that we lost investor money. Um, but I, I think we were building something that was really powerful and that had the ability to, to change an industry, to change the way we thought about our relationship with our stuff. Um, and I think that that part was harder.
1: Wow. So You and I have talked about this just a little bit, but you know, what, what do you find based on your experience? And now that you're on the other side of it, the mistakes that founders, especially female founders are making when it comes to growth and raising capital. And from your experience, what would you caution them on based on the mistakes that you all made growing the business?
0: You know, I'm just not convinced that, um, that so so part of what I'm working on I guess I should lead with part of what I'm working on now is this idea around how do we create a new asset class to fund companies that is an alternative to venture capital because in reflecting on my experience and then I worked as an entrepreneur in residence for a number of years where I got to coach a lot of founders and I watched the same thing happen over and over again and so I started to ask the question is that is it that people don't have good ideas that you know that can't scale or is it that like we're pushing everyone down one path and saying this is the way to grow a business. And this is what an entrepreneur looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think Mm -hmm. it's that we're doing the latter, but we should be doing the former and, and saying like, People are building companies that are creating real value, real economic value in the communities where they're operating. And perhaps venture capital isn't the right model for a lot of these companies. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean that venture capital doesn't have a place or a purpose or that it can't help companies scale. I, I certainly think that it's valuable and important, uh, but it's generally speaking inaccessible, um, yep. especially for women and people of color. Um, and it's, really going to force you down a path of mega growth when that not might not be what your business needs. And, and it's interesting, right? Like if you think about or what it's like that or built or built to do. Yeah. And, I mean, if you think about running a company as like, as like your child, because I think a lot of us who, who, who are entrepreneurs feel very much like the stuff we build is, is a reflection of who we are and you wouldn't force your child down a path that isn't right for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, with Venture, there is there is one path, which is here's some money, build a big business, or die. And, like, I, you know, you wouldn't want to tell your kid, here's some money, get, you know, do something great, or, or die. <laughs> or die, right? Or I'm no longer going to be your parent. Like, I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's just figuring out what that middle of the road looks like and being really thoughtful, you know, as an entrepreneur, you don't realize how much you're giving up and people are like, well, did you own the majority of your company? Yeah, we owned, I mean, with our employees, we owned 50% of the company the day that we shut it down. Um, yeah, I mean, we we negotiated well, I guess, but like, but the reality is that for most entrepreneurs, they're not going to own, you know, if, if a company even makes it to IPO, you're going to own maybe 10% of your business or 5% of your business. You're the last person to get paid. You're the one that had the idea. You created all of the value. Now that's not to say that investors don't play an important role or can't play an important role, but I just, you know, when I talk to entrepreneurs, I think really think twice about how much money you actually want to raise. Like what do you actually need and how can you prove your model works. How can you get to revenue so that you have the power in the relationship or the conversation with an investor?
1: Oh, this is I'm so happy you brought this up, especially one as a founder who has raised capital and now on the other side of looking at how can we look at a, at alternative forms of financing? Because I think especially for women, um, we don't have enough skin in the game, so it's either you're going to be a unicorn or you're going to be small. And I get founders coming to me all the time and I'm like, you don't even have the type of business because they're just saying, I need capital to start up. I'm like, there's other, there's other, yeah. let's talk about that. But I'm like you based on the type of company this is, but also when I ask them, where do you ultimately want to take this? That, those two things alone help me understand if it's structured to be a VC backable company. Because I tell founders all the time, I'm like, most of you are not about this life. Yeah. You have to grow literally rapidly fast. They want to see 10 to 30 times their money. They want an exit within five to seven years. People don't understand. That is that is insane. It's insane. I mean, I didn't sleep for
0: three and a half years. Like, I what? worked 90-hour weeks. Um, I,
1: I had a mom come up to me, and she was just like, do you think, you know, with this lifestyle you're to have, and then having a family and this business, you think VC's right. And I was like, Oh no, no. I'm like, and not based on what you're saying you want in terms of quote unquote balance. I'm like, absolutely not. So I love that you brought that up in terms of the alternative forms of financing. So yeah, to walk us through like what you're working on now and how we can support you.
0: Yeah. Well, um, I'm hopefully gonna very shortly here be on the path towards raising a fund, but the idea is to be part of this emerging ecosystem of alternative forms of capital where we make an equity investment in a company, the company buys back the equity over a 10 year period using a percentage of revenue that's set aside. So the caveat being, at least for now, you have to have be a company that has revenue. Yep. Um, but the, the goal being that we're transferring the ownership back to the entrepreneur, really aligning the incentives around, you know, for us and for you, the incentive is, is revenue growth and ultimately profitability so that whether you want to go raise venture capital or you want to go sell to a private equity fund, or, you know, you just want to run your company for 30 years, which is also an option that people don't always think about or consider, right? You know, you could build something and it's a real labor of love and you love it and you want to run it every day for the next 30 years. So, so, so I think
1: it's about giving entrepreneurs that optionality. I love that. And if there's one piece of advice before we let you go, if there's one piece of advice that you wish you would have received then that you want to give female entrepreneurs now, what would that be? Trust your gut. That's the
0: biggest piece. I, there were multiple times I think where I, where my co-founders felt like this doesn't feel right, or we don't know if this is the right strategy or method, or maybe we should push back. And I think we didn't because we thought, well, we have investors that have invested in, you know, iconic companies. And if they're telling us, this is what we need to do, then they're probably right. And also we're young and we're inexperienced and we need to, you know, we should humble ourselves and learn from people who, um, who know more than we do. And I think the reality is is that if you're an entrepreneur and you're building a business, you know, your business better than anybody else does. And people are going to give you a ton of advice. And half the battle is figuring out like, what's, you know, what's real and what's not real. And I I kick myself the number of times I wish I had listened to my gut.
1: Thank you so much for listening to Get Shit Done. We hope you got the traction tips you need to help you grow your business on your own terms. If you want more support scaling your company and a chance to connect with a curated community of like-minded founders focused on slaying traction goals together, head to the link in our show notes to check out our accelerator and membership community. And if you enjoyed today's episode, show us some love by rating, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. I also love hearing from you, friend. So tag me on the gram at Get Shit Done Queen and tell me what you learned or what you want to learn more about. Until next time, queen, I'm Alex Batdorf reminding you, you got this. Now go out there and get shit done.